faia te iti kahurangi ki te tū ohu koe me he maunga teitei. Pursue what is precious and do not be deterred by anything less than a lofty mountain. E ngā iwi o te motu, tēnei te mihi kia tātou katoa, nau mai ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahika. Ko Justin Murray tēnei. I'm Justin Murray and you're with Radio New Zealand National's Kaupapa Māori programme, Te Ahika. This week we're spending time with a gardener from Pātia who's influenced by the moon and a television personality who thinks that Māori men need to look after their health better. We'll also hear from a Māori fashion designer and we'll be sizing up a short story collection in our review series, Te Wete Wete. Māori Television's long-running karaoke competition, Homai Te Paki Paki, has a larger-than-life host, Te Hamua Nikora. He hasn't been seen as much as usual this year, though, because of some pretty big health issues he's been dealing with. As a result of this experience, Te Hamua is now encouraging Māori men to get themselves checked out. The problem with Māori men is we think we're way too cool to be going to get medically checked in the bum and in the penis and in the testicle area. We think we're too cool for any doctors to be touching us around those regions. The truth of the matter is, Buck Shelford and Te Hamua Nikora went and got checked up on that. And we're cooler than any other person that I've ever met. My mum told me so. We'll hear more from Te Hamua in this week's edition of Te Ahika. The Villa Maria Cult Couture Fashion Show is running in Manukau this week and one of the finalists is designer Kitty Nathan. Having created clothes since she was young, she feels that her Māori heritage adds to the flavour of her designs today. Inspiration for me comes from a lot of different areas. I'd say um, if you ask me what was pivotal to me always, it's that there is always a Māori influence and a European influence in my work because, you know, I have a great respect for where I've come from, both sides. Designer Kitty Nathan. Joining us today is Megan Joe, who reviews the book Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa by Tina Makareti. Nā reira, iaku raurangatira mā whakarongo mai ki ngā kaupapa e whaiaki nei. Ko te mea tuatahi. Harriet and Spencer Ray seem to have cracked the winning formula for raising children and growing veggies. At last count, their children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren number more than 80, and the gardening is just as impressive. The strawberry bushes lining the driveway to their house in Pātia have fed three generations of her family, and the garden is abundant with companion planting that Harriet swears by. She also attributes her success to planting by the cycles of the moon and the occasional dousing of seawater. Mariah Rakuraku visited Harriet the day after a bitterly cold Taranaki night. Over here I've got gherkins, sunflowers, red and yellow, kamokamo, cabbage and pak choy and spinach and now I've got shikinis then I've got Livingston daisies now is the time to be putting your seedlings into your garden um, I will be leaving all my seedlings that's in the hothouse until next month before the, the new moon before I'll be putting them out into the garden 
this is um, I work by lunar planting and I have found it uh, very successful. Now could you describe what lunar planting is? Lunar planting I find the moon has four quarters and in the first quarter is where you put in the um, ground crops, which is lettuce, spinach, cabbage, collie, brock and tomatoes. By quarters, what do you mean? Like, is, is it Well, that's the first quarter before the um, new moon. Before full moon is the second quarter, which is called waxing. It's the waxing moon. And that one is to... It's beneficial for planting out seedlings. Could you describe what a waxing moon looks like? Well, no, I can't really. It's just that um, I think they seem to use that waxing as um, the proper time of putting in your your plants because of the gravitational pull of the of the moon. Oh, yeah, and. Um, I seem to find it works very well by having your plants put in or even doing trays of seedlings because of um, the gravitational and light forces draw moisture up out of the ground which helps your plants, your seedlings and plants to germinate and also for the plant growth. Now, Harriet, this is the way our old people used to plant, is that right? Well, I'm going by that because of me being taught by my great-grand-aunts and uncles and grandparents when we were little kids, um, and they also taught us to weed by hand if possible because of your um, strong feelings I suppose in your body that goes into the roots of your plants and we've always been taught by that and I always remembered it even with me doing my gardens I still get down on my hands and knees and weed where I can and um, so yeah Um, but no I do it takes time to learn all this um, phrases, though, off the moon. It's taken me a while, but it's just sort of remembering back to when I was young. And how you were brought up. And how I was brought up. That I seem to always go back to those days and think about it. Does it help that <clears throat> your house is located so close to the Patio River? Well, it helps me because I'm watching the river of when the tide builds and when the tide draws back out. Right. And that's where I work in with my with the lunar moon. So you're not reliant on the internet? No, I am not reliant on the internet. <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. But um, because of being by the river, I do. I find it very, very beneficial for me because of um, the way the... And because of the moon... That draws in full tide, and when the moon starts dropping back, it takes the, the water out. But because of the, the um, drawing of the full moon with the moisture that comes into the ground, and I don't know whether a lot of people realise that.
because of the full moon draws the moisture into the ground to help the plants. Now you've been gardening on this property for over 40 years. Yes. That means you've nurtured the soil for 40 years. I have, yeah. And I'm just looking at your garden now, I'm looking at some silver beet, parsley and spring onions. Are those spring onions? Leeks. <laughs> I'm looking at some leeks and they look so lush. And, I mean, could you put it down to the soil and how you've nurtured it over the years as well? I, I can do, yep. It's how I nurtured the soil for those years, for all those years. But what I've got here is companion planting. Okay. So what's companion planting? Companion planting um, is I always have my parsley with tomatoes. How come? Well... I seem to find that because of the parsley, it just makes the taste in the tomatoes a much better taste. Like sweet? Sweeter, and it has, I don't know, it just seems to have a, a different flavour to the fruit. Mm. And um, so what also I've tried, I put the leeks with the parsley just to see how that they will go. I keep trying different um plants for companions with each other. This time I've tried rhubarb beside those three, the parsley, the leek and the tomato. I've tried the rhubarb along there just to see how it goes. If they go no good or will they out come, out they come. So you do little experiments? I'm doing, uh, yes, I do. I do a lot of experiments. And do you then base the outcome on what they taste like or...? Um... Well, not really. It's just that to me, it's a cabbage. To me, it's an onion. To me, it's a. <laughs> and um, yeah, so now I do. But over there is a nasturtium, which I have around the garden because I find that that keeps down the white flies. A lot of people think it's white butterflies, but it's white flies. It's little white flies. Could you describe what they look like? Well, they're only little, oh, little I think I know what wee like. things. Got white. And they're white. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, uh, for the few years before I realised about the nasturtiums, it used to be just full of white flies around the area. Drive you crazy. Yeah. Because they eat yeah. your veggies. They, well, it's just that they do. They get onto it and then they sit on them, mm. sit on the, on the plants. But, um, yeah. How do you manage snails? Snails are our friends. <laughs> <laughs> not really. Not really. Not for plants anyway. Um, no, I do use snail bait, but very little. Because I go around, to me, I find, I treat my plants like my kids. I fuss around them. I do, I fuss around my plants. And I'm everlasting going out in the garden and looking for snails or looking for slugs. And I just squash them or drown them or whatever. But my daughter, the one that lives in Wellington now, she's always said, Mum, I will I'll never will ever come back into this world as a snail. <laughs> And I said to her, why, Judy? She said, well, you'll either squash me or you'll drown me. So, but no, I do. I do take care of my plants just like how I do with my kids. 
So could you, could you describe um, how you do that? If it's a frost, do you cover them up? Do you? I do cover my plants up that I know that um, don't like frost. And what plants are they? Um, pea, uh, peas were one. Tomatoes, lettuces are the main ones. But um, I didn't realise about my succulent um, this year because I didn't. I've never had the problems with the frost with the succulents, but apparently they all got burnt out this year, my succulents, and it's because I worried about covering other things, other plants, mm. and not realising about the succulents. Mm. Mm. But, well, they're struggling, they're coming back, so I'll make sure next year I'll be watching for the frost. Now, we're just, uh, we're just at the doorway of your hothouse. Now, I'm five foot, about five foot eight, eight and a half, you're around about five, five foot, three. five three, and I think I would have to kind of duck my head to go into the smallest little hot house I've ever seen in, the, in my life. <laughs> so it's Harriet size hot house. <laughs> oh no, I don't quite need to duck. <laughs> wow, it's it. Well, it's full of glass, but uh, there are glass parts missing here and there. Um, and like my husband, he decides to put all his other things in, inside here as well. <laughs> That's Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> I have my spray containers, which I use rhubarb. Rhubarb spray. What's rhubarb spray? Well, I just... Um, Cut off the leaves of the rhubarb, cook the stalks and, and just cut the rhubarb leaves up and boil them. Because rhubarb, um, I can remember my nanny when we used to take the rhubarb out of the garden and then boil it and she said we had to make sure that we boiled it a sufficient time otherwise it was poisonous. The leaves, mm. yes, yes. The leaves are if you don't... Um, I mean, even just eating it raw too, it, it's, well, I mean, probably bitter. I've never ever tried it, but um, it's just that I boil it for at least three quarters of an hour and then I let it cool. And then um, when I think I'm ready to start spraying the garden, I I just don't mix it with any, anything else. I just use the juice of the... Um, the rhubarb leaves. And you find it's a good deterrent? Well, it's, it doesn't affect bees. You can spray it throughout your whole garden and it also goes back into the ground. And helps nurture and it. helps nurture the ground. Okay, and we're just walking out the door and there are the usual garden tools galore. Spades, shovels, pitchforks. That I'm soaking, it's sheep manure, yep. and I'm just soaking that at the moment. Okay, so it's soaking in a bucket, and bucket I can see bubbles paper. coming out of it. Yeah. Now, what's the purpose of that? Well, it's just that I'm going to throw it over the garden once the, um, I get in and stir it all up. So that's like sheep tickle? Yep. And right. is that quite good for, must be the acid and it's stuff in the tickle? It's a good feeding um, fertiliser. It's a good feeding fertiliser. But I always break it down and then just throw it over my garden. I just... Um, at times I will throw it on whole, but I'd rather break it down. Um, this one is 
Oh, I won't open it because it smells. This one is my lawn clipping. Oh, yeah. A lawn clipping fertiliser. Do you have a compost bin, Harriet? I used to, but I found out it attracted too much flies. White fly. Mm. And I think that's what caused the invasion of it all. And under this one is my fish heads fertiliser, which I feed my grapes and my lemon trees with. Now, how do you make fish head fertiliser? Just water. Oh, just add fish heads, you just, you just add water. Just put the fish heads or fish bones, whatever parts of a fish you can get, just throw it in there and and let it break break itself down. And actually the pathway that we've been working on has a mixture of gravel and those oysters, yep. oyster shells. Which I managed to scrounge from the fisheries that used to be down the bottom here. I'm Maria Rakaku, this is Tahi and I'm walking through the garden of Patia based Harriet Day. Now, as we walk out of this part of the garden, we seem to be going onto the lawn and around here by some flowers. We're heading back towards the CDs hung up along the grape grapevines. Now, there's a whole lot of different flowers planted in between um, veggies. My husband used to say to me when I first started gardening was, you can't eat flowers. So I thought, well, I'll fix them up. <laughs> so I started putting my veggies in with my flowers. And I've done it ever since. And I guess you found out during that time that flowers quite naturally have become deterrence around around my 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 plants mm. and that and it's all a mixture all a different mixture of plants that I have I've got in this area that we're looking at now I've got lilies nasturtiums rhubarb lilies um, rosemary and as we go further along we've got parsley lettuce spinach um, thyme, all my garlic there. I've got lettuce coming up all over the place. Oh, and all the parsley. We supply our butcher shop here in Pattaya with parsley throughout the year. Oh, look at that beautiful lettuce. It's usually $3.29 in pick and save. So I've got a, a big mixture of um, flowers as well as veggies. I've got chives. I've got garlic. But it's not... <laughs> Don't get a chance. <laughs> um, just got a bee flying around at the moment. Mm, that's good. Um, got a kunini tree. Yeah. Now, that's Harriet, fine. I'm looking at this garden, mm-hmm. and there is so much kai in here that I'm guessing your husband and the moko who lives with you, it's too much kai for three people. What do you end up doing with the leftover? No, I give them out to my neighbours or any any of my friends that are out of town. Um, most even my whanau, but a lot of the kids from that don't live here, like in New Plymouth, they always come down maybe once a month and are looking in the garden for what they can take home. Um, at this stage. Um, what they really like, I haven't got in, but they are um, coming up. The seeds are growing now, but I probably will leave them till about next month, till the next new moon comes up before I plant them. 
um, plant them out, which is the komokomo and the pumpkin. Now, the reason <coughs> I came on this day, which is October the 19th, 2010, is because of the timing around the moon. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. is a good time to... Now's a good time to be putting in your seedlings into your garden because of the um, gravitational pull and your moonlight is strong and it stimulates the leaf. And also it's a waxing phrase time too and it for, for you to be fertilising, you're feeding your plants. So I've got just about all my fertilisers ready to be thrown over my garden. Now, Harriet, that doesn't necessarily mean that you, you're out here at midnight planting. I'm out here all hours of the night, day and night, more or less. When the lunar... When the lunar moon's up, yeah, and it's more or less feeding my plants. And planting? Um, I've never planted at night. I've planted in the evenings, but I've never planted during the night time itself. Now, what I have noticed, Harriet, are the um, the CDs. You've got CDs hanging off um, vines and around your garden, and no doubt that's to ward off birds. That is to ward off the birds because I've got them underneath the grapevine, um, which goes down the fence line. Oh, how neat! <laughs> and how many of them are we talking? Well, we're talking 37 grandchildren and 35 greats. Woohoo! Oh, and here are your muckles, more rocks with these, your muckles' names on it. Rakan. Uh, these four, Rakan, Christy, Lena and Kylie, they're our muckles that we've brought up. We had brought up, and then I've got nine of my children also. Oh, yeah, Jason, Craig, Tracy, Vicky, Spencer, Judy, Viv and Clinton. Clinton and Kathy. And Kathy, and it was Vicky who nominated you. Vicky was the one that nominated me. Nominated you for t- for Garden of for the, the Year. Garden of the Year, mm. yeah. And that was a bit of a surprise for you, wasn't it? It was. It was. <laughs> it was really a surprise. But um, yeah, a nice one. It's very nice. I'm proud of what she's done. She just reckons that I I um, need the recognition of what I've done for all those years, and I'm so proud of her, really, for putting it down that way. Only hope I could find the letter for you. I'd love you to read the letter. <laughs> the congratulations letter. Oh, the letter that <laughs> the she letter wrote that in. she the uh, yeah rough copy that she'd written. Oh, did it make you cry, Mum? It did. Mm. It did. Had a bit of a tonguey. Yeah. <laughs> Harriet today in her garden in Pazia, up the road from Whanganui. You're listening to Tiahika with me, Justine Murray. Keeping with our gardening theme for a moment, one of the short stories in Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa by Tina Makariti is about a man growing a woman from the soil. The story is called Skin and Bones and it won the best short story in the English section of last year's Pikihuya short story competition. In between presiding over the Māori Women's Welfare League and her job as cultural standards advisor for Kahungunu Iwi, Megan Joe found time to read the collection. Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa by Tina Makariti, published by Huya Publishers, 2010. What's your feedback? There were 13 short stories, and I liked eight of them, really liked them. One was really unusual, and the other four, although they were easy to read, 
uh, they didn't grab me at all. Yeah. So what is it about the the ones that you did like? Uh, the ones that I did like, um, I found that easy read, um, I could relate to them. Um, I've been in those places or spaces. Um, I've had the same, of similar experiences or in certain situations and similar relationships. So those ones I could relate to them. The other thing too is that I found that they were all, they were familiar to me. I could pick out the characteristics of some of those mythological um, characters. I mean, so what do you mean? I mean, what does she write about? Well, she she takes um, she takes characters from um, those from mythological stories, Māori mythological Māori, stories, yes, and she places them into modern day context. And it was easy for me to follow because I knew the the, um, the myths anyway, so I could yeah I knew what the who the characters were and who what she was trying to describe. So what about people who wouldn't know those stories? Do you think there's still something there for them to hook into? I would yes, I think there are because it, they are, they're in, they're interesting. She's made it yeah made the storyline quite interesting. So yes, she would. So what's people an example would. of an interesting story? Oh, um, for me, Kaitiaki. And what's that about? That was an excellent story. Um, that was a queer who who actually practiced the, the value of kaitiakitanga. Which where, is looking after people. Yes, yes. And um, I thought that was quite a powerful story, using a queer and her mokopuna. So this is a story where the queer finds a baby in a playground and then takes him back to her kainga, yes. right? And it's not a baby who's a rel- relative of hers. No, but she certainly does look after him. And um, it's just it's just an unfortunate that it's not in you know, maybe times gone by where that was totally acceptable, but at the end we have the police coming in and, you know, suppose the social workers, that sort of thing. So I think, yeah, people could relate to those stories. What about the ones you didn't like? Uh, well, the storylines were kind of, for me, were sort of boring. <laughs> and um, and they actually happened to be the last few stories um, in the book, yeah, the last, yeah, the last Do you think stories. she ran out of puff? <laughs> she, oh, yes, I think she might have. <laughs> I think she sort of did, yeah, and it sort of became a uh, ho-hum. You know, for me it did anyway. The only one there in the last few stories was um, Moko Moko, which, which I thought was quite clever. Mm. So are you recommending it? I would. I'd recommend it to... Um, this is the first time I've actually read a, a book like that. What do you mean like that? Like um, a short story yes, collection? Or? Uh, yes, and, and myths and, and, and taken from, you know, from back to... and putting putting it in a, the context today. Yeah, that was really very different. In terms of a Māori author, is she someone that you'd, you'll find yourself watching or waiting for the next collection? Um... Yes, I probably would have a look to see what what she comes up with next because uh, it's very cleverly crafted, I think, these stories. Mm. Megan Joe reviewing Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa. If you head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, that's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A, you'll see the full list of books we've reviewed, including this one.
listening to Te Hamuani Kura is a popular frontman on Māori television and has worked in Māori media for the best part of 10 years. But over the last 12 months, it's been a trying time for the 35-year-old. He's been through intensive chemotherapy, has undergone brain surgery and is still on the pathway to giving up smoking. Despite that, there's one thing he never loses, his keen sense of humour. If we could start, please, you hail from which area of Ngāti Pro, of course, being the Gisborne area, which... Which yeah. is your here? I love that question. I love <laughs> that question. Um, the reason I love that question is because my mum and dad, between them, pretty much take up the whole of the East Coast in their whakapapa. And um, that's why I use the, um, the name THC, the Hearty Coastie, when I'm rapping, when, when, when I'm writing my songs. Even my business is called Te Hamua Communications from THC, the Hearty Coastie. The Hearty Coastie. My papa is nothing but tairawhiti. Um, I have a little bit of Tainui Whakapapa in me as well, but that's Ngai Tai and, uh, and, and my Tōrere side, so that's Tairawhiti as well. Uh, yeah, I'm really, really lucky to have um, grown up in Gisborne, at my marae, both my marae in Gizi Town, Pohorawiri and Whangara. Um, my dad was the cop in Ruatoria when I was a little boy. I went to Hiruharama Primary School in Ruatoria where I learned to speak Māori. My dad was the cop there, so we did a lot of hanging out at my... Uh, East Coast Marae, um, like Hiruharama, um, Hinerupe, um, all of that. So I was brought up pretty much amongst my people, taught to be me amongst my people, and taught to be proud of who I am by my people. So I'm really, really lucky. What was it like to be the uh, the son of the local cop? Yeah, I didn't even know when I was a kid. I didn't know that, you know, I was, he was my father as far as I knew. So I didn't know that cops were fellas that people didn't like until I got around about 14. No, I was 17 the first time I was ever strip searched by a policeman. So it wasn't until then that I realised that people didn't like cops. Um, particularly in Ruatoria, it was kind of freaky because not only was he the cop there, but he was also everybody's nephew. And he was also the wife of everybody's niece, uh, the husband of everybody's niece, my mum. So um, they expected to be allowed to get off things. The only problem is my dad's now a preacher man, and he sort of had that philosophy and whakaro about him his whole life, about honesty and doing things properly and correctly. So, yeah, when I go back to Ruatoria, I sort of get chased around by fellas that are just a little bit older than me because they used to get tickets from my dad back in the day. But see, the, but the funny thing is that most of those guys that are... Um, chase me around or get smart to me in Rua about my dad being a cop. We're around about my age when when he was a cop. I was five years old, so none of them got, actually got a ticket from the old man. But, um, you know, I'm proud to have been brought up in Ngāti Pro and to have been um, immersed in my whakapapa, immersed in the fact that Ngāti Pro people are very, very proud people. We're very talented, and we don't tend to shy away from that fact. And ever since I was a baby, I was encouraged by my whole family um, to do what I can do. We go to the marae. I was a baby. I was sat on the pai pai tapu with the old men um, because they all knew that I would be useless in the kitchen with a tea towel. So <laughs> put, him, put him over there. He's got a big mouth. He likes to flap his lips. Stick him over there. Ana kou, kou tera e mahi ana i tera mahi. Nai nei. They set me up. It was mean.
I mean, I can so picture that to Hamua because, you know, on TV we see this really, um, you know, cheeky Māori fella who quite often does this whole impromptu, you know, you can fly by the seat of your pants in terms of uh, managing a crowd. So have you always been that hotutu when you were a little boy? I, I, when I was little, I was, um, uh, they used to call me Grasshopper when we were living in, in Rutoria. I was a little skinny fella with no hair like I am today. I didn't grow hair till I was five and off to school. Um, big Chinese-looking eyes and some fat lips on me when I was little. And I guess because I was so cute, I could get away with being as mischief as I was. Um, with my father being the local cop and also the church minister, it was a little bit hard to be mischief without getting a good hiding for it. So I learned how to be mischief and undercover at the same time. So I was the mischief fella at school all the time, but as soon as I got home, I put that preacher man's son head on and I made sure that I was walking straight and acting correct. Otherwise, see, my father had no problem with um, lifting his right leg, swinging it and attaching it to the back of my kumu. So, yeah, I was a mischief fella, but I also learned what it was to be a good boy um, and to act properly. And I, I guess now I can go off the cuff at anything because um, one of the big things I had to do was talk myself out of trouble when I was at high school. Uh, I'm actually amazed that I um, made it to the end of seven form, but yeah, I talked my way out of a lot of trouble at high school and also with my father, so I hope he's not listening now because he might remember a few times give me a ring afterwards. So were you um, part of the whole manukōrero scene back in your days at school? Oh, another funny story. Um, we... We used to do manukōrero in our Māori class at uh, Gisborne Boys High School, and um, every year I used to actually win my age group anyway to go away to the regionals and represent. But it's all of that thinking that you're cool at high school rubbish that you go through. Yep. I thought that I was way too cool to be actually comp- competing properly, so I used to turn up to the manukōrero competition with um, four or five little cards in the palm of my hand that had no words written on them, and I'd stand up there in front of the judges and I'd say a three-and-a-half-minute speech and just turn the cards over as if I was reading something. <laughs> and then they'd say, may we please see your notes for your speech so we can... Something to do with the marking. And I'd give them my my five blinging cards with nothing on it and they'd, they'd just sit there bewildered. What the heck just happened? And I guess it was, I'm the son of a preacher man. I've seen my father preaching since I was a little baby. I've watched my grand-uncles fight at the Morai since I was that age as well. Um, I was also lucky enough to have been brought up by my uncles Derek Lardelli and Wayne Ngata um, whilst living in Gizzi as a young fella. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm good at what I do, but it's got nothing to do with me. It's because of um, my papa, mm. the influences that have uh, have been put on my life as a child, and also the encouragement that I get from our old, old, old people back home, like people that are tohunga and rangatira, have nothing but encouraging words for me. So, I, I, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. So, to Hamua, I'm guessing that, you know, this foundation and, and your influences around you and your obvious talent um, led you to your broadcasting career, your TV career. Yeah, so um, it was... It's, it's, if, if I was to look back now, it sort of looked like a whole lot of mishappened accidents were lined up and then all of a sudden I'm doing what I was born to do. Um, I moved to Auckland in 1997. The reason being, the only reason that would get me out of Gisborne, a wahine. 
<laughs> I was going to say. Yes, only thing, because all the crime miners in Gisborne, waste time coming to Auckland for that. <laughs> and um, there's, there's no lambs balls around here, or teroteros, they're very, very rare. So um, to get me out of Gizzy was only a uh, wahine. And uh, I followed her up here, we're not together anymore, but um, for that first year, and, and I was teaching at Waini Waititi, the Kurakaupapa, um, as, as is pretty obvious, I love tikanga Māori, I love kaupapa Māori. So I thought the most obvious job for me would be to be a teacher. Uh, by the end of the year there, I sort of realised that, I, yeah, I did love teaching, but I was kind of lacking something. Mm. The audience sort of wasn't big enough for me. <laughs> the kids that I get all day um, for the whole year sort of wasn't enough. So I ended up at um, My FM in Rui Mai um, doing radio. And that was maybe a couple of years there. And then into um, 1999, ended up um, doing two meki, which became Pukana, which mm. is now one of the most rocking kids shows on Māori television, um, oh, on New Zealand television to be... Te Hamua, I think, you know, coming, coming from out of your career, you are one of the hosts on uh, Homo Te Paki Paki on Māori television. But of late, there's been, um, I suppose, a, a bit of a Māori unified stand-up cause, really, for you because of your recent health issues. Could you tell us about that, please? Yeah, that was um, the, the, the unified Māori stand-up thing was something that I totally did not expect. Uh, uh, for the last four years, I've had pain in my left testicle that I knew about, and um, I could feel it every day, all day, every day. I just put it to the side because I wanted to ignore it. I'm a Nazi, and as far as I'm concerned, um, back then, as far as I was concerned, I needed two testicles to be a real man, and I knew if I went to the doctor and told him that I had pain in there, he was going to tell me it was cancer and it was going to have to be cut out. That's exactly what happened. So I stand before you now, and people say to me, bro, are you all right? And I say, yeah, cuz, I'm all right. They cut the left one out. I'm literally all right. That's me at the moment, sister. I'm all right, but um, it's great. It's... um. So I went to the doctor, I got these operations, and then and then the iwi sort of found out about it on Facebook. My, I needed like 60 grand for the second mm. operation, and my baby sister was on Facebook, and she said, hey, all you people out there, my brother, you fellas say that you love my brother, you fellas reckon you know my brother, you, you, yeah? Well, there's 5,000 of you, his friends on Facebook, 12 bucks each, and he can get his operation. And, and it was just picked up from there by beautiful people such as uh, Mukotini, Stacey Daniels, uh, just lovely, lovely people in the industry like that, Mike King, my bro, and they just ran with it and came up with all of this money. Then I got a call from the hospital saying, um, we're going to give you the operation for free. And I had to think to myself, now, is that because you always wanted to give the operation for free or is that because the Māori kumara vine got pumping and the people out there started finding out that you didn't want to give me the operation for free, really, in the first place. So we got all of this money sitting in a trust at the moment, and um, I'm just leaving it there. I've got sort of, I've, I've said to the ancestors that, you know, I want them to tell me what they they they, they want me to do with this money. Yes. Uh, it's definitely going to be for high water and something to do with cancer. I lost my mother to cancer. Uh, one of my sisters, Shell, she she died of cancer. Um, my grandfather. So you know, it's a very very big thing for me. And I think the main thing for me is for is to get out there and tell our men go and get checked. The problem with Maori men is we think we're way too cool to be going to get medically checked in the bum and in the penis and in the testicle area. We think we're too cool for any doctors to be touching us around those regions. The truth of the matter is 
Buck Shelford and Teha Muanikora went and got checked up on that. And we're cooler than any other person that I've ever met. My <laughs> mum told me so. So they removed your left testicle. But there's also an, uh, uh, some other myriad of um, health issues that's kind of simmering in the background. The the, the money that was spo- that was um, raised initially was for, was that for brain surgery? Yeah, I had, um, I had brain surgery. So after... After getting the testicle removed, I got a year's worth of chemotherapy in one sitting. Um, that was decided because I couldn't um, afford to be too sick after heaps of chemotherapies. So they decided to give me one in one sitting. And, oh, well, what happened then was <laughs> instead of getting sick heaps of times, I got sick once, all those heaps of times all put onto each other and all into the one man who was hard out. And so I was vomiting during the day. Um, and a tumour that had grown in my brain, pretty much just uh, the brain shifted in my head and it, and it rubbed against the skull, splitting the tumour open, which bled and blah, blah, blah. So I had migraines for, you know, a couple of weeks on end sort of thing. And that's what we needed the money for was a, um, a pituitary gland operation that was going to cost X amount of thousands of dollars because it's so difficult to do. If you slip, then um, the person that you're doing it on is pretty much buggered for the rest of their life. Mm. But I'm lucky because um, the guy that, that did my operation is the best in Australasia, so not only New Zealand but also Australia as well. So yeah, all of, all of that money is um, uh, sitting at the moment just waiting to be used. Uh, I also have diabetes and blood pressure issues and stuff like that, which is a general Māori thing now that we're eating food that our ancestors didn't tell us to eat. McDonald's, so, you know, that, that sort of thing. I drank too much as a child, or not as a child, but as a teenager. And um, into, in my, my 20s, drank too much alcohol, that, yeah, all of that. So those problems mount up. And I now feel like I should be out there telling the brothers around the country, come on, man, we need to make sure that we're eating properly, drinking properly, and staying alive. Otherwise, our kids have no dads and all of that. That's real important to me. Te Hamwa, you know, with all these health issues and health um, problems that has been bestowed upon you within the last, um, you know, year or so, really, has it, um, have you changed your your philosophy? Has it made you face up to your mortality and have you become, have you changed? I think um, all it's really done is confirmed a lot of my beliefs from before. Um, I now know without a doubt that Te Ao Māori loved me. That doesn't mean that they love me because I'm me. They love me because of what I've been made into by my people, by my iwi, by my tipuna, by my parents. Um, that shows me that what my parents, my iwi, my people did was the correct thing to do. Uh, so when I have babies, I'm going to deal with my babies the same way that I was dealt with by my family because... I mean, the love that was shown to me over the Matariki period when I was needing their money for the operation was totally amazing, very, very humbling. So if it's changed me at all, I now don't have such a fat head. I realize that I am not the superstar. I never ever thought that I was a superstar, but I really, really realize now that I am nothing without the iwi. And I'm talking not about Ngāti Pro. I'm not just talking about Māori people. I'm talking about Aotearoa. New Zealand, I'm nothing without New Zealand. They, New Zealand Aotearoa is what makes me me, and I have nothing but love for our whenua. Kei tuatu ki tērā, te hāmua ni kora, host of Humaiti Pakipaki Māori Television. Kia ora rā. Kia ora rā.
For links and information about today's edition of Te Ahika, once again head to our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And while you're there, why not join our Facebook page and become a follower to get updates about the show or email us direct on tiahika at radionz.co.nz. It's always great to hear from you. Kitty Nathan is a Māori fashion designer and was a finalist at the Villa Maria Cult Couture 2010 competition held during the week. She's no stranger to this level of competition, as I found out when I met her at this year's Middle Morda Fashion Show. Hi, my name's Kitty Nathan. I'm actually from Auckland, born and bred in Auckland, but my bones are Popo is from Ngāpui, Natihine, and Nanny is Tainui from the Waikato, um, Morrinsville, Natimaru. Kitty, where were you brought up? In GI. In, in Japan? I'm sorry, Gleninus. Gleninus. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, where, um, I suppose I'm leading to where did it all begin? Have you always had an interest in, in making clothes, designing? Yeah, I think it started because. Um, this sounds a bit cliche, but I, we couldn't afford to get the clothes that I wanted to wear, you know, in the you know beautiful fashion magazines and stuff. So I started making things, and like I said previously, I was making things because I had these great ideas. I wasn't exactly finishing them as well as they should have been done. But I think that's where it all started, and then I started doing a little bit of modelling when I was a teenager, and one of the labels that I modelled for... Uh, was Kim Fraser, who later became a tutor um, or head tutor at the arts department at MIT, and she came and plucked me out of school and said, this is what I think you should be doing, and I agreed with her, and so that's where it all pretty much started, and it's just been a journey since then. As a mum and her whānau steadily growing, Kitty decided to give up her full-on job as a flight attendant to pursue her dream. The year that I gave up flying, I entered Pacifica, and um, I won the traditionally inspired and then I won the supreme so that night my husband and I kind of went out we had a few wines and we said okay I think this is where we need to be what year was it that you won um, um, 2008 2008 and then that was followed by Metal Mortar last year and I won the emerging designer section here at Metal Mortar and then went to Fashion Week and then a month or so after Fashion Week I won at Colco Tour and the day after Kokochua, I gave birth to our well, our fifth child, and um, wow, now was, we're here. <laughs> was this all last year, or 2008? 2000, it was the end of 2008 when I won Pacifica, and then that was closely followed by Metal Water last year, which was, so Metal Water 2009, I won the emerging section, and then straight after that was Fashion Week in September, um, and then straight after that in October was Colt Couture and I won Colt Couture and then the day after that I had Baba Kaiawa and uh, you know it was a really full on year for the whole family so we decided that we'd give Baba three months and we'd just you know welcome him to the world and to his crazy family <laughs> Kitty what's the difference in your opinion um, between a Māori fashion show such as Middle Morda and a non-Māori fashion show? I think the thing that stands out for me, I'm not, I can't speak for everybody else, but when you're in a Māori environment, you feel it. Anyone who's Māori knows that. You know, you're surrounded by Māori people, everyone's total to everyone else, and it's just a warm 
supportive environment and that's what I feel here. All the other designers will help you, you'll help all the other designers. It's not one of those situations where you almost step over people to, to put yourself up. This is a really nice environment. You know, were you brought up in a very Māori whanau? No, actually, um, oh, well, Mum's Māori, you know, and her parents are both Māori. Um, Dad's Pākehā. But story behind that is that Popo actually ran away from up north when he was younger, and I think, uh, like a lot of other Māori at that time, he sort of figured that in order to succeed, you needed to live in a Pākehā world and... So he kind of brought his children up like that. So he was fluent te reo and, you know, he did... This is your koro, you're This is my koro, yeah. Your he didn't pass that on to any of his kids because he felt at the time, I think, that it would have held them back, which is unfortunate. So then, of course, us as the next generation, um, my mum was the eldest, I'm the eldest. We didn't get it either. So when I went back and started studying, I based all my study around everything Māori, pretty much, and I started to learn there but it was more from like a, a learning facility than it was from a whānau. I don't think that my actual personal whānau um, experience was something that I would call a good influence. <laughs> um, but uh, fortunately I've been surrounded by other beautiful Māori and beautiful Māori families and I've, I've gained it through other whānau, so which other I call my whānau now. Your but other influences. So, could so he, yeah, we, we, if you say brought up in a Māori environment, I would say no. And then I had to go out and find it, right. pretty much. And we are trying to ra- like raise our kids in a Māori environment. But it's still, you know, it's still, it's a learning. It's, it's just learning and it's a journey and it's a journey for us as parents. And, you know, we just want to give the kids more than what we were given when we were growing up. Mm. Mm. So then, um, Kitty, you know, I saw some of your your, your gowns um, that were judged earlier this morning. Absolutely stunning. You know, what is your inspiration behind um, your creations? Inspiration for me comes from a lot of different areas. I'd say um, if you ask me what was pivotal to me always, it's that there is always a Māori influence and a European influence in my work because, you know, I have a great respect for where I've come from, both sides. My grandmother um, was, like, just the most beautiful seamstress and dressmaker and she has this great love of Hollywood and, you know, the vintage era and I was kind of brought up around that and I love that because, I don't know, I I loved the way that her face would light up and that kind of made me light up. So I love that whole side of things. What's Nanny's name? Inez. That's from my Pākehā side, yeah. Inez Bulletin. And then the Māori side, which I said to you earlier, has just been a a journey which brought me to Kōrawai. And so I was uh, learning Kōrawai for just over a year and I just fell in love with it. It felt like... How were you learning Korowai, Kitty? Um, at a local marae, yeah. Again, because I don't have the whānau to learn it from, so I had to go out and find it. And I'm, I'm so glad and so grateful for it. I was surrounded by just awesome environment <laughs> and, you know, it was just a really good learning and it was just really comfortable. It felt like home. And it just came naturally, like... Yeah, the feathers and everything, I just, I love it. And so I find it quite...
calming and my life is not very calm with all the kids, you know. Um, so when I get time to sit and just do that, it's almost like therapy but not having to pay for it. <laughs> and it feels right, if you know what I mean. So what I've done with the designs now is that I concentrate on my my actual design. I don't try and force Māori into it, but what I bring into it is um, weaving usually like in the form of a wrap or a clutch purse or a muff or you know some sort of accessory if I can weave it into the gown I try but I I often find that it just it sits off the body a bit too much Um, so aesthetically I haven't devised a way yet to build it in successfully. I've done it, but I don't think it was as successful as I would like it. So when you're talking about aesthetics, um, Kitty, if we, say for example, if we were looking at one of your gowns in front of us, Mm. you probably couldn't know that it was Māori? Unless you've got the backstory behind its creation. No, a lot of them, them, you can look at them and you'll think, oh yeah, I see the pew-pew effect there, or I see... um, you know, like I said, I have tried to weave into the gown, and you can definitely tell that that's Māori. But I personally, I don't think I've mastered that yet. I think I need to keep working on that and evolving that particular area. Uh, so, if you look at one of my pieces and you have the gown, it would always, or most, most usually, it would be accompanied by a contemporary kōtāwai. So that's. That's my signature, pretty much, a gown and a contemporary kōtāwai to match. Um, today's four pieces, though, they were show pieces, basically. This is a competition, and sometimes I think you need to push the boundaries, and so those were real, like, I suppose I was trying to wow the judges. Oh, and that's what you mean by like, show pieces? Yeah, like, they were, like, competition pieces, not, not much commercial value in them sort of thing and because they were so worked so highly worked there was like 40 hours put of hand sewing put into one of these skirt oh. skirt bottoms and um, if you try and put a beautiful contemporary kōtāwai on top of that it's just too much like it's just way too much so yeah more elegant simple gown and, and kōtāwai or contemporary kōtāwai is, is pretty much my signature in terms of like you know designers, whether they be New Zealanders like Karen Walker and Charlize Cooper or overseas, you know, do you kind of um, watch what they're doing? As a person who's creative, I just think you're always looking at what other people are doing because it's interesting to you, you know, not what everyone's doing. And I mean, certain people stand out for me. I love John Galliano for Dior, and I think Ali Saab makes beautiful, beautiful pieces. Kitty, what's the best piece of advice that somebody gave you? Um, it's funny because it only came like two days ago. The best piece of advice it actually came from two of my bridesmaids. I was having a little bit of a struggle with... Um, I pretty much say what's on my mind and I I don't suffer fools very well. Um, if I think someone's false, I don't really like to have much to do with them. Um, or if I think they're nasty mm. or evil... <laughs> I try and stay away from them, whereas I'm finding in this industry sometimes you just have to learn to bite the bullet and play the game. And um, I was kind of struggling with that whole thing. And I spoke to two of my best friends and both of them just said, babe, you know, you just need to go there, put your work hat on, 
do your mahi and then come home. And if it means, you know, being a particular way, that is the industry that you have chosen to be in. So I think an answer to your question is that when you go to work, you put your work hat on, and then when you go home, you take it off. I think that... But do you think it can come to a cost of what your own beliefs are? And in particular, I'm talking about, you know... Because I talked to the models, Kitty, about, um, you know, we consider our body, you know, whare tangata, and you've got people touching your body, you've got people... Mm. You've, you're kind of half naked in front of strangers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, is there a time that you can recall that we have thought you know my tahamari is saying that's not right yeah um if something if i feel so, like really strongly about something of course you know i'm a pretty strong individual it's more for me learning to bite my tongue <laughs> then it's more for me like learning not to say something rather than um learning to say something um as far as the models are concerned i think that is being you know that particular subject is being brought up all over the world at the moment the treatment of models and the respect of models who they are and as people like you know not just maori but women need to be able to say i know i'm sorry but that doesn't work for me whereas i don't think they were ever put into a position before to be able to say no Whereas you can always say no. You know, you always have a choice. What I was probably trying to say for me is that... Oh, how do you word it? I need to be sometimes a little bit more diplomatic. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes if someone's just... I just think, you know, if if there's a nasty person in the room and, you know, I would probably say you need to get yourself in check leave that person alone or whatever whereas now I just need to sort of like back off and mind my own beeswax <laughs> things like that you things know. like that things like that yes Kate Tuatuki Theatre Kitty Nathan fashion designer thank you thank you you're lovely Kia ora. thank you in next week's Te Ahika, I'm at the Ngahau Efa Māori Squash Tournament and Mariah Rakuraku talks to Dr Clive Aspen, an Indigenous researcher based at the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health at the University of Sydney. But that's it for today. E te iwi anō ki te kapinga a Te Ahika, aneira a Te Hamua Nikora with this week's Whakatauki. Strive for the highest of the highs. If you have to give up and bow your head, let it be to a lofty mountain. That saying is a, it's a, it's a mean one to me. It inspires me. As far as I was told by my old people growing up in the Tairawhiti, no mountain is bigger than Hikurangi Mountain, and you don't even bow your head to Hikurangi Mountain. So where I come from, Go for it, go hard, you can do anything. He mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa ngā kai whakarongo, ki tā mātou kai kōrero Harriet Ray, te hāmua Nikora, Megan Joe rātou ko Kiri Nathan, ngā mihi. Atu i a rātou ki te kai whakahare tapu-tapu, kia ora rā. Me hoki mai hei tērā rātapu mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora.